daughter podcast about the representation of women in movies and television. I am Tessa Dare, a writer and the author of the paranormal mystery series The Karans and Chronicles and Beth's Daughter. And I am Beth von Baron, Tessa's mother and also a writer. In this podcast, we talk about movies and television that feature women as the leading characters or where the story fo- focuses on women or women's issues. Our discussions will also touch on roles available to women how men have dominated the film industry since its beginnings, and whether or not that is changing. Today we are discussing Little Women, uh, the movie version that is directed by Greta Gerwig, was made in 2019, running time of 2 hours and 15 minutes, produced by Columbia Pictures and Regency, uh, written for the screen and directed by Greta Gerwig, and that is her actual credit. Instead of giving her a separate credit for writing, they put it all together. Uh, And that's because it's a famous book written by somebody else. So uh, it's based on the novel by Louisa May Alcott, uh, produced by Amy Pascal, Denise Zinovi, and Robin Swicord. Amy Pascal was listed first, so I think she Mm. was the the primary producer. Director of photography is York Lisseau, which is a very interesting name. Production designer is Jess Gonchor, and I don't know if Jess is a man or a woman. The editor is Nick Huey, H-O-U-Y, I don't know how to pronounce that. And music is by Alexandra Desplat, or Desplat. Costume designer is Jacqueline Duran. So there's quite a few women in the production of this. The uh, main actor is, can you pronounce her first name for me? Sorsha. Sorsha. You know what, I'm going to write that down. Sorsha Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, they play the sisters. Laura Dern is the mother. The men are Timothy Chalamet, Tracy Letts, Bob Odenkirk. I think it's Chalamet. Is it Chalamet? And there's two E's on Timothy. So Yes, it's French <laughs> through and through. French through and through. Bob Odenkirk, James Norton, great actor, love him. Uh, doesn't get a lot of screen time in this, but he's really good. Louis Garrell, Jane Hattishell, Chris Cooper, I almost didn't recognize. I'm, I'm looking at his face, you know, and he's got this makeup and he, his hair is gray and kind of bushy and beard. And I'm thinking, I know this guy. And I had to look him up. That's a good actor. <laughs> anyway, and of, and of course, Meryl Streep. Uh, did he play Mr. Lawrence? Yes. The older he's Mr. the Lawrence? uncle okay. to, to, to Laurie. Okay. Yeah. I think it's his grandfather. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. He's a very sympathetic character in this movie. And I think probably the most sympathetic male character in the movie yeah for sure very likable sure. yeah yeah i just i just looked him up and i i did i did have this feeling the whole movie that i recognized him but i couldn't yeah. quite make out his face and yeah now that i'm seeing him without the makeup for the movie like yeah I've seen oh yeah a he's, bunch of stuff. and i couldn't even tell you what else he's been in because he just kind of he's a, he's a name i always remember and i always recognize him but i don't remember the movies that he's been in which says yeah. to me that he's a very good actor because he, he, he's just a character actor. He's not a star. But everybody who knows, anybody who knows movies knows who Chris Cooper is. He's, you know, one of those kind yeah. of, kind of like Bob Odenkirk. I mean, 
yeah. Bob Odenkirk is up until his starring role, or you know, his in, in, yeah, in Breaking Bad and, and then Saul, Better Call yeah. Saul. Yeah, was one of those character actors who showed up periodically yeah. and stuff, and he was amazing. And Bob Odenkirk also had like he was a character actor, but he also has a background in kind of like more obscure comedy. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was he was in this sketch comedy show with David Cross called Mister Show with Bob and David, that which I familiar. think it, it's kind of like a cult show. Mm-hmm. It has a small but loyal following Mm -hmm. so prior to breaking bad and better call Saul, bob oldenkirk was known by some people for that but yeah apart from that he was mostly a character actor you know before we get into the summary um which tess is going to do i would say just point out that the reason we we are doing this movie today is because it is directed by greta gerwig and we had just uh just discussed barbie couple weeks Mm -hmm. ago and so we're kind of on a Greta Gerwig kick but I also as I was watching this movie I realized that the birth of Barbie is in this movie um there's there are a couple of scenes where the women talk about how disenfranchised they are in so many ways um there's one scene in particular you know where I think it's actually Amy who is who was not our most uh thoughtful character I mean she can be but she has a she has a good scene where she talks about how she even if she had her own money she would have known him when she got married she has children yeah. they won't be hers they'll be her husband's so there's foreshadowing Barbie foreshadowing in this movie there's several monologues mm-hmm. that sort of feel like precursors to the Gloria monologue yeah they do sure. they absolutely do yeah. so anyway do you want to give a, a kind of summary of the story for any for the, the very small yeah. percentage of people out there who don't know this story <laughs> yeah so I feel like Little Women is one of those stories where I feel like I've just always known the the major plot points uh, I, I know I did watch the uh, Winona Ryder version in the 90s uh, but I don't think I rewatched it that much it's just I feel like it's one of those movies or it's one of those stories rather that has been around so long and ha- it has such a I mean it's been remade like four or it's been made into a movie like four times there's a silent movie version right I, I think it. there's at least four yeah there might be a, t- a TV a made for TV uh, version two so there Possibly. might be five yeah but yeah so it's just it's a thing where like i don't think i watched it that many times i don't think i was that into it i'm sure i saw it once because i have memories of it but i feel like p- a big part of my ability to remember it as well as i do because I, I knew kind of all of the plot points as they were coming up is just because it's kind of this cultural uh, touchstone everyone knows about little women you know especially considering that there are so few stories that are about women that are considered classic literature and are written by women yeah because of that it kind of has this outsized place in our culture so have you read the book no no neither have i and i think that's something to say to our our listeners yeah that neither one of us has read the book and i will tell you that i have never had a shred of interest in reading this book i understand that it is written by a woman and it's about four women but it's a it's set in a, in a period in history that I have no interest in reading fiction about unless mm-hmm. it's much more dramatic. This is, oh, what do you call that? It's it's a domicile type of story. I mean, it's, it's just a story about these women in their homes and with their families and, and, their, yeah. and their, their whatever. There's a, there's a name for it. It's a, it's a bit of a Bildungsroman because it's about all of them coming of age. It is a coming of age story, yeah. And I, I, I see the appeal for actresses, you know, four main character roles. And how often does yeah. that happen in a movie for women, that there are four, yeah. you know, characters that they can sink their teeth into? Each one of them is very interesting in her own right and has has a, has a her own story to tell and could be its own novel, each one of them. But at the same time, I am sick to death of this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, okay. So I should actually like talk a little bit about what the story is. I mean, the story essentially is the four characters. So there's the mother who is known as Marmy by the girls. uh, And then there's Meg, Joe, Amy, and Beth. And I'm not sure. So I know Meg is always the oldest and Joe is the second oldest. I think, I feel like in the 90s version, Amy was actually the youngest and and Beth was a little bit older than Amy. I assume Joe was the oldest, so I don't know. No, I'm pretty sure Meg is the oldest. But in this version, they seem to have aged Amy up a little bit. She doesn't seem as much younger uh, as she did. Because in the 90s version, Kirsten Dunst played Amy, Mm -hmm. and she's, like, much younger. I rewatched the trailer for it on uh, Amazon. It wasn't really a trailer so much as just a random scene from the movie. But uh, Amy in that version is very young. This version, they seem like they're much closer in age. The the plot of the story is basically just these these girls going through their lives. Uh, Meg is the oldest and kind of the most traditional of the girls. Her actual desires are really just to be a wife and a mother. She wants to have a family. Uh, Joe is kind of the, the the actual main character and arguably the author insert. Mm-hmm. She wants to be a writer. She chafes pretty hard against the restrictions on her gender during the time period. She doesn't say this, but she kind of wants to be a man. She wants to have the freedom of a man. Yeah, she's a, she's a rebel. Uh, she very much wants to make her mark on the world and not in a traditional feminine way. Amy is actually very similar to Joe. She also really wants to make her mark on the world, except her passion is drawing and painting instead of writing. And she kind of... Joe is very confident in her abilities for most of the story. Amy doesn't really have the same level of confidence, mm-hmm. probably partly because she's the younger sister. And from her perspective... my I mean, my personal take is I think Joe is kind of the star of the family. And so Amy feels constantly outshined Oh, by and she does. She says it. I, I always get her... Yeah. her I'm second. I'm second. Always. She says, yes, yeah. she's always second to Joe. Uh, and then there's Beth, who <laughs> is kind of the sickly one. <laughs> it's largely she's her, a throwaway character. She's an she's a, she's a object of love for them and compassion, but she has no real personality. Yeah, she is good at playing the piano, but she doesn't really want to do it in public. She's very shy about it. And, you know, I feel like in this time period most wealthy families had to have at least one person who could play an instrument because that's the only way you could listen to music, right? It was entertainment at parties, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty common for especially young women to learn an instrument because how else are you going to entertain yourselves? Yeah. Um, so sh- she is the musician, but she's not really driven by that. She's very quiet. I, I mean, I-, I think her characterization is supposed to be that she's the kindest one, because she's the one who wants to help the poor family nearby way more than the other girls do, apart from her mother. Her mother also does. And this is also ultimately <laughs> what gets Beth killed. I'm, by I'm, the way, spoilers. I'm shaking my head here, and, and Tess is looking at me, because I'm shaking my head, because that is one of my sticking points with the story, is that the mother and we'll get the hot takes on this but she literally causes her child's death this is part of the story that drives me crazy but anyway go ahead i mean it's also it is a little bit annoying that it feels like beth is this sort of angelic character whose angelicness gets her killed mm-hmm. and it, it also kind of robs her of any interesting personality yeah but you know what the actress in this version pulls it off really well I, I, I think was, so. I think all of they the all do. do. Yeah, I was never yeah. bored by Beth's performance, and that's that's yeah. that's saying something. I think I was actually going to say I think Emma Watson does an incredible yeah. job as Meg because my memory is that Meg is like kind of the least interesting and most forgettable character, but in this one she kind of wasn't. Mm-hmm. Emma Watson really made her a bit more likable. It, it really felt like 
in this version, I she's still not my favorite character, mm. but I, I felt much more of a connection to her and much more like I actually liked her. And I feel like that is a credit to Emma Watson's performance. Emma Watson puts a lot of pathos into her performance as Meg. Yeah. Since we're t- since I mentioned favorite characters, I feel like that that's the big thing with Little Women is like everyone's got their favorite character. And for you and me, I I, I can't speak for you, but I kind of assume how how is it ever not going to be Joe? No, it's not Joe for me. Is it's it, Amy. Is I love it really? Amy. Okay. Fuck Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay. Amy is my favorite character, but I do feel like I'm supposed to like Joe. We're both writers, and I and she is to me. She is the symbol of creativity in in the film. But she's so selfish. (laughs) Well, I don't have a problem with her being selfish. I have a problem with her mother being selfless to the point where she puts her own child at risk. Scarlet Fever. Scarlet Fever is nothing to laugh at and it kills her. And she literally sends her off to take care of a sick family while their mother, and I cannot, I'm not going to use her name because Marmee is stupid. It's a stupid name. I'm sorry. (laughs) Just like, we can call her Laura Dern. I, and I love Laura Dern, but I don't don't like this character. Don't like she does a yeah. good job with it though. I mean she she does, she, like, does. she does a much better job than Susan Sarandon did. I she made it's really hard to make it not a sappy character and uh yeah. Laura Dern does give her a little bit of nobility, but but it's it, yeah. it's written into the character because there's just not a whole lot you can do with somebody who is so devoted to her sense of duty that she gives away their their Christmas breakfast. And it's not like they're wealthy. Yeah. It's not like they're wealthy. It's like you're you're yeah. giving away something that is a real treat for these girls. You're giving it away mm-hmm. without I mean mm-hmm. it's just it's ridiculous. And I understand about charity. I'm a very charitable mm-hmm. person. But I wouldn't give away money or food that I needed to feed my own children. Yeah. If you're wealthy, you can do that. If you're not wealthy, you can't do that. And that's something you yeah. have to accept. She cannot accept it. She is she is so bound by her sense of duty and her need to be charitable. And I don't know where this comes from, but it's ridiculous and it makes me sick. <laughs> it's kind of implied that the father is the same way, right? Because he, he he's he wasn't drafted into the army. He volunteered and I think he's just a pastor. He's a chaplain. So he yeah. he volunteered to go be a chaplain for the army. Like are you even helping that much? Like, uh, well, my partner and I were watching it, and at first we were theorizing that he was a doctor, and no. then it kind of made sense that he was going to the front line. But then he finally shows up, and he, yeah, he's a he's a chaplain. So he he volunteered to go be a chaplain for the army because he just so wanted to quote unquote do the right thing. But meanwhile, he left his wife and four children to alone for themselves for years. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And also, how did he lose his money? It's written into the story, the novel. That he has lost his fortune. How did he do that? Yeah. How did he lose unclear. his money? We don't have any information on that. Maybe he gave it away. Maybe he gave it away. And you know what? Yeah. His sister is not wrong. When she says yep. that he, he fails, she is not wrong. Both of these parents, I see them as, as good, well-intentioned failures. But the girls are not. The girls are resilient. But it doesn't matter how much how resilient you are. Scarlet fever can be deadly if you don't have antibiotics. Yes. And they didn't. Sorry. The mother just really drives me crazy. <laughs> the parents are frustrating and I feel like a big part of what's frustrating about them is that the novel thinks that they're right. Mm-hmm. Like the novel presents oh, yeah. them as angelic. Yes. And I feel like that actually speaks to my broader problem with the whole story. Uh, my partner and I were talking about this and we were both talking about we were both trying to figure out why both of us are big fans of Jane Austen but don't like this story that mm. much and eventually I, I think I figured out for me what the difference is 
Jane Austen was very critical of her main characters. She wrote stories to be incisive and to be commentary on social class, but also on different personality types. You know, I mean, take Emma, for example. The whole point of that novel is that Emma is way too proud and way too sure of herself and kind of needs to realize that she's not always right. In this novel, you do have characters who have flaws, but it feels like the writer doesn't get that they're flaws. Like, I think Joe is an incredibly flawed character, but I don't think Louisa May Alcott thinks she was a flawed character. I now, think Louisa May Alcott why do you think thinks she's a that Joe character? is always right. Because I think Joe is the only good character in the story. I don't like Amy the way you like her. I think she is... I don't like Joe. Well, there you go. <laughs> and actually, let's let's go back a little bit because there was something that I wanted to talk about. You know, maybe part of my issue with Joe... Joe leaves New York and comes back to take care of her sick sister. Would Amy have done that? Amy isn't given the choice. And that's a problem that I have with this story. I think it's incredibly cruel that they don't tell Amy what's going on. And based on the way that they're talking, yes, she would have. They intentionally do not tell Amy that her sister is dying. And not only do they not let her say goodbye to her sister, they don't even tell her in time for her to come back for the funeral. Amy misses out on everything. When Joe, oh, it is at the end. You're right. You're right. It is when she's in New York. You're right. And I think we should probably try to get back on, on well, track. Well, uh, that's actually a very uh, good onto... point. But also communication between the United States in in Europe during that time might have taken months to get to her. There are several lines of dialogue where they state that this this comes up multiple times where they state that they are intentionally not telling Amy because quote Beth doesn't want to ruin her trip. And I don't really think that was Beth's decision to make. I think this is an incredibly cruel thing that they did to to Amy. That is my personal take. As someone who recently lost someone, I would have been incredibly pissed if yeah. everyone else around me knew that he was dying and didn't tell me and didn't give me the chance to say goodbye. I, yeah. I think that's super cruel. I, 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 th- I remember that now. And I and I remember thinking, no, you really need to let her know so she can make a choice. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, whether or not she could have gotten home in time is, is another question. So, because it is a long She might voyage. not have. Yeah. But they could have given her the chance and they didn't. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, like speaks to my overall issue with this story is that I feel like it has some of these characters make these decisions that are not good, but the, the story has no interest in questioning them because, you know, Amy comes back and they just kind of gloss over all of it. Like she's devastated, but she's not mad at them for taking away this opportunity. And maybe that's partly because she knew that there was a chance that she wouldn't get back, but it just feels like... There are so many instances where we don't really interrogate what people are doing because I think Louisa May Alcott didn't really want to. She wanted to write a nice story about nice characters who who do nice things. And even though they don't always actually do nice things, the narrative kind of treats it like they are. And, well, and I think and that's part of why I'm, I'm not that interested in this story. <laughs> family relationships are complicated. Sibling relationships are complicated. One thing we, we didn't mention is that Amy... Uh, marries Lori before they come home. Yes. Which doesn't give Joe the opportunity to tell Lori that she's changed her mind. So that's another thing Amy does. Now, Amy doesn't know. She already turned them down. People change their minds. But, I mean, it's, I'm not, I, I'm, I don't hold that against Amy, but I think it is another thing that she does, and she is very happy about it. She isn't just happy to marry Lori. She is happy 
to have something that, that well first she says she doesn't want him because he's a cast off of Joe but she's she's mm-hmm. loved him forever so when she, I think she's always been in love with him and yeah. yeah so when she marries him I, I, I think it's kind of a stab at Joe I think there's a there's a resentment. I think that's there. your interpretation okay. I think okay. she's always been in love with Lori well, yeah, and that is that. a real but yeah she yeah. says that yeah because she, she could have married the other guy the other guy was wealthier uh, Fred Vaughn mm-hmm. I don't know why I remember that name out of all of them but the guy who was courting her in Europe she could have married him he was wealthier but she's always been in love with Lori I don't know why I don't like Lori very much as a character I don't know why but... anybody would be in love with him yeah um but yeah but I, I wanted to go back to the beginning um because uh we should talk a little bit about the way that Greta Gerwig has structured this I do think it's interesting especially you know for a story that everyone is so familiar with Greta Gerwig kind of made a decision to tell it out of sequence and she's doing something really interesting with the coloring some of the scenes are in like bright super saturated colors and then some of them are in uh, slightly muted more cool tone colors Uh, those scenes are typically the ones that are not quite as happy but also for Mm -hmm. most of the story those are like the present day scenes are are the sort of muted colors and see the thing she's not very i think it is an interesting idea what she did with it but she gets a little sloppy with it when you when we I agree it gets a little weird yeah when when we we start off the the so the the book came in two parts the original book that was published and the first part sets it all up and the second part kind of resolves everything so we're starting off at the beginning of this movie version in the second part but then she flashes back to earlier scenes that are in the, in in the first part at first it works but mm-hmm. but then she gets sloppy with it and i think because she's cutting back and forth really quickly and all of a sudden you realize wait a minute where are we now where are we in time yeah i i do think that that gets a little bit difficult to parse i also my interpretation is that for the last roughly 15 minutes of the movie the stuff that's happening in the like sunny happy lighting is not real and is a part of the book that's what it seems like to me because it kind of seems like that stuff and the the darker colored stuff are not really happening on the same timeline you know because the, the darker colored stuff is where joe goes to the publisher and eventually gets her full book published Uh, and the stuff that's happening in the bright colored stuff is where she gets back together with frederick and they get married and they start a school for boys it kind of feels like those are maybe two different stories you mentioned the coloring there were there were a couple of scenes and this might i can't remember this might have been right after beth dies but the, the coloring that she opens with is orange kind of mm-hmm. like there's a storm on the horizon orange and that i thought that that was pretty effective yeah i do think it was effective but i also think that the the part where beth dies is where it starts to get a little confusing it is it's very they go she's cutting back and forth too much or too quickly yeah um well and and between things that are too similar because she's yes, cutting back and yes. there's beth sick in the present and beth sick in the past yes, yes exactly and she's cutting back and forth between the two of them and in the past beth survives and in the present she doesn't mm-hmm. uh, yeah it's just that, that's the point where it starts to get confusing for me and I feel like that's maybe also the point where it feels like things change and the brightly colored stuff is no longer the past and is instead the novel yeah and yeah I think the coloring is a good way to do it changing the color back and forth and I don't I don't I kind of like the idea of starting later in the story in part two and then flashing back to part one but you can't 
cut back and forth like she did in the last third of the movie. Yeah. So dra- I mean, it it's, a, a little... it's, it's too much. It's, so that's one structural issue I think I have with the movie. The other structural issue uh, is that at the end of the movie, when Frederick comes back, and actually this is this is this is a, a problem I have with the whole movie. Did she cut out some of the flashbacks that she meant to use? Because Frederick comes back and they're all lovey dovey, and he asks her to marry him, and they're going to get married. And it's like you left on on really bad terms, but also mm-hmm. in the flashbacks, it's not obvious that they have. I mean, they had they go they do some things together, but it's not obvious that they have a romantic relationship. When he he's it's more like he's a professional relationship, and he re, yeah. he, he reads her her stories that she's been publishing with Mr. Dashwood and says these are terrible and she says but it's what people want to read and he says but you don't you mm-hmm. don't have to write like that you can write better they'll want to read it that too and mm-hmm. and then that's it she leaves after that to go back as far as we know we don't really know because there's so little yeah. time spent with 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 Frederick and 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 I do remember in the version in the nineties with uh, Susan Sarandon, it is Gabriel. Wait a minute, <laughs> Gabriel Byrne. Yes, yes, yes. It's Gabriel Byrne. My my memory of that movie is that in that movie the professor is way older than her. That that was my interpretation when I was a kid. Well, and he's supposed to be. I think. I, if the, I Fre- think so. You're talking yeah. about Frederick. Frederick. Frederick, yeah, Frederick, yeah. yeah. He, I think Whatever he is, is supposed to be 10 to 15 years older than her. And Gabriel Byrne, I think, this is the 90s. He's my age. So he would have been in his 40s. And who played Joe? Winona Ryder. Oh, yeah. So he would have been easily Much double older, her yeah. age. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't, there's, they don't establish enough of, enough of a romantic relationship for them for when he comes back at the end. I him, think that's the, intentional. You do? Okay. I, I didn't like because it. Because <laughs> my interpretation is that him coming back in the end none of that's real i think that's what she wrote for her novel because the the conversation that she has with the publisher uh and i guess we should establish this oh a little bit. i didn't the understand story, what you were saying st- you're saying that's not actually happening in the story i'm saying none of that happened or at least that's that's my interpretation i think you could interpret it multiple ways but my interpretation is I, I agree with everything you just said i think they did not really establish her relationship with frederick as romantic it doesn't feel like it's been getting it's gotten enough set up at all that's part of why i think that none of that really happened in the real world version of what happened. And the flashbacks that are the, happening while he's reading the novel. She, she's sitting yes, there and he's I, I reading she, it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, she came up with this ending to please her publisher. So all of that romantic stuff at the end with Frederick is in the novel that she wrote. It's not part of this story. It's not, it's not part of her actual story. Her and that part story. of the movie story. But, but I think in yes. the original book... And and the other versions of the, yes. of the movie, it, it, they do get together. But what happens? What happens is that he goes off. He goes off to, and he doesn't go to California to teach. He goes off to to the Western lands, quote unquote, to make uh, to make enough money so he can come back and support her. So mm. so them they're opening the school at the end. Do you think that's in the novel or that's reality? I think that's in the novel. I think mm. her her real ending is just getting that book published. This is my interpretation, and I think Greta Gerwig is being a little meta about it because there has long been 
debate about why Joe gets married in the book when she has spent the whole book saying that she never wants to get married. Mm -hmm. And not only does she get married, but she gets married to the guy that nobody wants her to get with because everybody wants her to get with Lori. And, you know, even in versions where I I think Greta Gerwig has intentionally cut down how much time Frederick has, but even in versions where he has more time, I don't know a lot of people who are happy with her ending up with Frederick at the end. Maybe there are some, but my uh, impression has always been that nobody really likes who Joe ends up with. And I think Greta Gerwig has come up with a kind of solution for that where you can interpret it my way or you can't. So my way, Joe never gets married. She's just a writer uh, and she lives her own life. And at the end of the the second part, um, the second book, they don't get married. I don't think. Yeah. I think he, he goes off to California to make... But there was a sequel, wasn't there? I think the stuff where they... There were a where lot they, of... Uh... She wrote a lot of stories, and some of them might have been mm-hmm. sequels, but I was reading the Wikipedia page, and I think he goes off with the intention of coming back. He, the the yeah. goal is that they're engaged, I guess. Uh, yes, and he yes. will come back once he's made his fortune, quote-unquote. I don't know how he's going to do that yeah. as a teacher. But yeah, that's about what he's supposed to do. But then in the Wikipedia page, they also, they also jump to the next part of the story which is that she inherits aunt march's house and yes. and opens this the school so that is in the novel um so I, I think we should maybe jump back a little bit uh i mean again i'm hoping that anyone listening to this has seen the movie and certainly that most people are going to be aware of the story anyway but i do want to talk about how the movie begins because i think it's part it partly explains why I don't really connect with Joe that much as a character. And to be fair, I have this problem pretty often with fictional representations of writers because I always feel like most fictional representations of writers, they go one way or the other. They're either way too depressed and downtrodden or things happen way too easily for them. And I feel like Joe is in that second category. Uh, and it begins with the first scene where... We open up with Joe walking into a newspaper office and immediately getting her story in the paper. For twenty, she does say for that twenty dollars. He gives her twenty. Yeah. Now you th- we have to assume that's dollars, right? That's a lot of money. Yeah. That's a lot of money for a yes. story. It it is less. It is it, it. They do make the point that it's less than he normally pays, which is probably because she's a, she's woman. a woman. He says that they normally pay twenty five to thirty. So he, he gives her 20, so it is less. But it is a lot of money. That That's, you know, I mean, later on. That's enough for, they say that would that, pay her rent for the month. Exactly. And and probably still have some left over and she, to And she's an family. unknown it's, writer. She, she just yes. walks in off the street. And she doesn't even, she tells him it's for a friend. I'm submitting this for a friend. And she doesn't even say the friend is male. She says my, my, my friend who, my, my woman friend. friend. Yeah. yeah. And he sees through that immediately. Yeah, of course. Like it, it's very clear that he knows that it's her. Like it's it's not a it's not a good cover story. It's so why clearly why like, does she do this? I don't understand. I any- think she's I think she she's maybe a little bit embarrassed. You know, mm. like she she kind of doesn't want. Yeah, I mean, I, I I understand that a little bit because I understand it it can be very very hard to share your writing with somebody for the first oh, time, yeah. and that's basically what she's doing. So I think this that's her way of giving herself a little out so you know if he hates it then she doesn't have to be completely embarrassed she and, and can just she is embarrassed by the nature of the writing too because it is yes they are stories that are kind of slightly scandalous or or whatever mm-hmm. and she it's not really what she wants to write but she has to make a living yeah. and that's why she doesn't want her name on it she doesn't want to buy lies she doesn't want, to, she doesn't want a story yeah. credit it sounds like the part that he cuts out 
is the part that she wrote to try to ease her conscience over what she was writing. Mm-hmm. Cause she says something about like, she wanted her sinners to repent or something. Yeah. And that's the page that he, that he cuts out. Um, I will say like, I, I like a lot of that scene uh, in part because I kind of love uh, that the publisher is named Mr. Dashwood. I kind of love him as a character. Like he's not a, a good guy necessarily, but he is hilarious. Great. Yeah. Um, so I, like, I do like that aspect of the scene, but as someone who, like, is a writer and lives in the present day and has submitted stories, it is just nowhere near that easy. Like, it's it's tough for, for me to watch a movie that opens up with a scene where you're clearly supposed to empathize with Joe and you're supposed to feel really bad that she's not getting paid as much as men, you know, because they, they make a point of that and you're supposed to feel like she's this underdog and I'm just like... That is so much easier than it is to be a writer today. If she had done that today, she would have been fucking laughed out. I, <laughs> like I she, actually, she would have had to. I did not feel sorry for her at all because, and when he said yeah. twenty five to thirty, I'll give you twenty. I'm sitting there thinking, I'm surprised he didn't give her five because she's yeah. a woman. So no, twenty was pretty good. I'm just sitting there fuming that she got it published oh, at all. Yeah, see. <laughs> I, I just like this lucky little bitch. You know, and it was an unrealistic scene for me too. And and that's why, because I think realistically, if she had walked in as a woman offering another woman's work and he had said, we usually pay 25 to 30, I'll give her five mm-hmm. because she's a woman. That would have been realistic. But to say he yeah. was going to give her 20, which is, you know, two thirds of what their maximum yeah. pay is. That's pretty good. And yeah. The whole thing with her getting published after him just reading and just getting an appointment with him, walking in the door yeah. and sitting down just and walking getting in the him door to and he's read immediately her stuff. Available. Yeah, it, it, that the whole thing was kind of unrealistic. Um, it's a although, fantasy. although I, yeah. I do think that um, Alcott—that's how she made her living. She wrote stories for newspapers. I will say, like, part of this is how much writing has changed because it is true that in the 1800s it was more similar to that just because Mm -hmm. there was not nearly as much competition right you know we're talking about a time where people had to hand write everything no one even had typewriters and literacy was was an issue so Yeah. yeah But at the same time, there were enough literate people that people were buying magazines. Mm-hmm. This is largely how Charles Dickens made his living. You know, he would sell yep. he he would sell his stories to magazines, and they would come out every week. Mm-hmm. That's also part of why Charles Dickens stories are so incredibly verbose yep. because he got paid <laughs> by the word. Yeah. Uh, so the more words, the better. But you know, these magazines would come out every week. People didn't have television. The magazines were you know their main form of entertainment. So these publishers were hungry for content. Mm -hmm. and didn't necessarily care as much about that content so to an extent I do think this is somewhat realistic in that like if she had been a man this would have been a completely realistic scene Mm -hmm. but yeah I I do think it's a a little bit weird that he didn't lowball her more than that especially since it was the first time Mm -hmm. you know it'd be one thing if if she slowly got him to pay her more but uh, anyway so part of my jealousy is just the fact that it used to be so much easier to get published because not as many people were literate. You had to write it all by hand. So it was a physically much harder process. Publishing has changed so much in the last 50 years. It is just a completely different beast well, than it was you know, that, at that time. That's a good segue into what I think one of the themes of the movie is. And that is that it's, it is a book and in a way it is a book about writing about creativity, about the life of the mind versus the life of commerce, which is what the other choices are here. It's set in, in a time when both men and women conferred 
important on artistry and you know everybody you know women learn to play the piano even men because frederick comes back and plays the piano for them so and somebody says in the and i have a note here about this somebody says writing doesn't confer importance it reflects it amy says that yeah or wait no no sorry sorry Joe says that, but then Amy responds uh, with... Well, the quote is, writing doesn't confer importance, it reflects it. And I'm not sure what that what that means. But then Amy says, you make it important by writing about it. Oh, okay. She, it's conferring importance. Yeah, what you said is what Joe says. is kind of a debate that they're having. Yeah. And I do think that... I mean, to me, I, I do think that the core of the movie is the debate between Amy and Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think Joe, in some ways... I mean, I think she's a much more masculine character and Amy is a much more feminine character. I think Amy embraces parts of her femininity that Joe doesn't. And I think in kind of an extension of that, even though Joe really does not like her place as a woman, in a lot of other ways, she has really absorbed the common ideas of the time, including the idea that something is only important if people are already writing about it mm. that she that she, it's not her she, it's not her place to decide what's important and that's why she doesn't want to write about women whereas Amy's take is but you can make it important by writing, writing about it. it so in some ways Amy's perspective is a little bit more radical and part of that is because she's a little bit more feminine and more interested in feminine things. She's more practical too. She understands that money runs the world. And she yes. says, I always knew I would marry for money. And she gets what she wants, I think, except for Beth. And maybe Beth gets what she wants too. Because that, that's actually a different... To die. Well, because she's such an introvert, she doesn't really want to participate in life. She's yeah. always drawing back. I think she's okay with dying, which is a terrible thing to say about a character. But it does feel like she is absolutely accepting of her fate because she is yeah. so afraid to go out into the world. So, of course, she's the one... Yeah. Who, who dies young. But I think they all three get what they want. Meg gets the marriage and kids. Um, Amy gets mm-hmm. the wealthy marriage. And at the end of the movie, and this is my favorite scene in the movie, <laughs> she is standing there watching them print and bind her book. And I thought, yes. that's like giving birth. It, 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 it's, yeah. just, it's an amazing scene. And, and Greta gets it. She realizes yes. that this is her baby. And she's yeah. getting to watch it being put together lovingly by these craftsmen who, you know, make each book individually back when they yeah. could, you know, when there was time to do that. And it's just, it's a really beautiful scene when she's standing there in the window and, and watching them put her book together. And that's her, that's her baby. Yeah. So I, I also, I, I, I want to explain why Amy is my favorite character okay. in a way that doesn't really have to do with her relation well it does have to do with her relationship with joe but it's not really about their actions i I will just interrupt you real quickly and say i don't love any of these characters i i struggled with amy because i thought she was self-absorbed and you see joe as self-absorbed and she probably is but i relate to that more i related to her self-absorption more than i did to amy's see i related to amy's more because i think i think joe is really self-confident in a way that Amy isn't. Amy never feels like she's good enough. But and why? I relate to why that. is that? And the thing is, she at that in that one scene that I think what you're talking about here, where she throws her paintbrushes down and said, "I'm done. I'm never." She says, "I'm never going to be great, so there's no point in trying." And to me, that's a terrible work ethic because 
any artist worth their salt will tell you that you don't get great by giving up. You get great by, per, by, by plowing on. But that's not the beginning of her story. She's already been at it for a long time. No, this is in and Paris. So wherever they are in Europe, I don't know where they are. Yes, but uh, yes. And at that point, she's already been an artist for a long time. She was an artist as a child. She's been working on her craft for a very long time. Um, but and this, did you notice, I think, did you notice the painting that she's looking at when she decides the, the previous scene, there are two scenes where she's painting as an adult. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the two scenes, one is when she's with our other artists and they're, they're painting the luncheon on the grass by Edouard Manet. And I thought, well, is, is Manet, Manet standing next to her? And, and that's what she's upset. And then you look over and know the, the guy next to her is painting it exactly the way she painted it. Okay. And I, I, so, I should have rewatched the scene to be sure, but I think she's actually painting it much more realistically. And, he, and the dynamically. Other is painting she, hers it. is more dynamic yeah. as a painting. But that wasn't, I think that wasn't the style at the time is the thing. I think the other guy is doing something that's more similar to impressionism and she's doing hyper-realism with a ton of detail. I thought her painting was by far the more beautiful. Okay, so but what year is this book set? Do we know? Roughly the Civil War. Okay. Uh, Manet's Luncheon on the Grass, 1862. It, it's a very famous painting. We'll just insert this really quickly here. It's funny that she chooses that one because it's considered by many people to be the birth of modern art. He inspired the Impressionists who then, you know, created the beginnings of modern art. And, and it mm-hmm. was his painting. Luncheon on the Grass, and it's 1862, and he was, it was an infamous painting at that time, not necessarily a well-liked one, a well-loved one, because it's mm-hmm. bizarre. He's got these two men on a blanket with a naked woman laying next to him, so when, in the picture that she's painting, in the, the painting that she's painting, and the guy's standing next to her, and I guess they're in a class or something, but the painting, yeah, their, their version is a woman is dressed, but in Manet's mm-hmm. version, she's naked. So, but there is no version of that on display there in that scene, and I'm not sure that they could have been aware of it. I think they're they're I I, I don't I don't know that they're supposed to be painting that exact painting because they're painting there are, there are actual people in front yeah, of them posing. Yeah, I know I, the whole thing doesn't make sense to me. It's like what yeah. is this just a throwaway scene? Oh, ha ha! Look at this, isn't it cute? Or is there a meaning behind it? And you know, is she saying that this is actually? I, I don't know. It was a confusing scene for me. My initial interpretation of that scene was that Amy was in a class and when she looked over and saw that the other guy's painting wasn't nearly as detailed as hers, that it was uh, an indication that the class is kind of pointless to her because she's already moved beyond it. But mm. then based on the stuff that happens later, I'm not sure that that was correct. I am a little bit confused about that scene, but I wanted to talk about like Amy from the beginning and kind of through her journey because I think her journey is very similar to Joe's but it's it's different in some key ways what I've always related to about her is that to me in some ways her experience feels a lot more realistic to life because you know like I said Joe she walks into this publishing office and she immediately gets published you know, even if she never got another story published after that, that's a really great and energizing start. And, 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 and she, that's it because she's not afraid to do it. It's, it, it she, she, because she's not afraid yeah. to do it, but also she she doesn't hit the same amount of resistance. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that that you would have in reality. She she's this is only her third publisher that she's tried, and she gets it published, and then she can pretty much regularly get her stuff published there. She's kind of immediately successful. And this is often my issue when writers are depicted in fiction is that it usually gets depicted as this thing where 
All the writer has to do is figure out their emotional problems. And once they do that and they find mm. their true passion work, they'll create something that's immediately so amazing that nobody will be able to deny it and they'll become a bestseller and they'll live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And that's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. That's not at all how it works. First of all, your passion project is often not the thing that gets gets you big. That's usually the thing that only your real fans know about. You know, your passion project is often your least successful work. Mm -hmm. And writing is not about just having passion it's a skill that you need to hone over time yes, it's work and it's hard work and none of these stories ever represent that we don't really see joe learning to write we see that she does write but it sort of feels like everything that she writes except for that one scene with frederick everyone loves it and fawns over her well and i think that's because she can write what they want her to write she doesn't yes she wants to write something else but she can't sell that she's she is writing entertaining things if that's what she sees getting published then that's what she's going to write and that to an extent makes sense it's just the only scene where she gets any pushback is the scene with frederick and even that scene she's really offended by what he says but Again, I am a person who has been in a lot of critique circles, and what he said was not that bad. It was actually pretty nice, because basically what he said is, I think you're brilliant, but you're spending your time on stuff that is not worth your while. That's incredibly positive feedback to get, and she is so offended by mm -hmm. it that she ends their friendship on the spot. But see, the thing is, it doesn't make any sense to me, that scene, because yeah. why doesn't she come back to him and say, I understand this, and I know it, but I have to support my family, and this is what I'm doing. Why doesn't she say that to him? And, you know... Yeah, I don't know. Does she do it in the novel? That's another question. But it seems unrealistic to me that, that Joe, she does not... And maybe Greta is like you and doesn't really like Joe because she's 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 inconsistent. With I, how I she, wondered. Yeah, she's inconsistent with how she presents her. I don't think that. I mean, she she responds to criticism from other people much more favorably than she did with with Frederick. I and mean, why should she doesn't say to him, "I understand what you're saying. I have to keep doing this, but maybe you can help me with the writing that I don't sell to the, this magazine." But this is part of my point: is she doesn't really get much criticism from other people the only other criticism that she gets is from her publisher who is very upfront about the fact that all he wants is that he's he's not really criticizing her he's criticizing whether or not she's written to market mm -hmm. that's it that's kind of his only criteria is have you written something that i know people will read and so and the only time he really criticizes her is when she sends him the first couple of chapters of little women and he basically just says i don't see there being a market for this and then is immediately proven wrong as his, his daughters, daughters. Find that's, the, that's a great yeah scene, his though. daughters find <laughs> the chapters and go crazy over yeah, it and demand that he publish the book and that's joe's happy ending but getting back to amy for a second her experience to me feels a lot more like what most artists actually go through where you know you have this period when when she's younger she draws she makes drawings for her friends and her friends love it and they think she's so talented uh, and then she gets in trouble for it because she's making fun of their teacher or whatever. But, you know, when she's younger and she gets she steps outside of the family, we never really see anyone in the family praising Amy's art skills. But outside of the family, she she does get this praise from her friends. And that kind of gives her enough of a belief that maybe she can be something bigger that, you know, she does decide that she wants to go to Paris at some point and take lessons. But then that's kind of all 
all she ever really gets. You know, once once she gets there to Paris, there's nowhere really for her to go. I think Amy's story, and it, it's not that explicit, but I think Amy's story gets at a part of sexism that is not as on the surface where you know you 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 create this piece of art and the experience the feedback that you get isn't you're a woman so it's bad you just get oh you're not really a genius and you get that over and over and over again and the reality is people have already decided you're not a genius because you're a woman you're just hearing you're not a genius. And that gets to you over time. Because even if you know, oh, they've already assumed I'm not a genius because I'm a woman, you're just going to hear the you're not a genius over and over I, and over again. I understand again, that, and it but ships away I don't think you. that's in the movie. I don't think she's hearing that from people. I don't think it's that explicit, but I feel like that that, that is what I take from it. I think she, when she, she says convinces that she's not herself a that she's not a genius. This is my take on Amy. I think she's a spoiled brat. And I think she assumed that because she's pretty and she, you know, she charismatic that she and her, she is a good artist i mean it, you know the art that the uh artworks they show of her the work that she completes is is fine it's very good but to be better at it she has to work at it and i don't think she wants to work at it it could be because she feels that nobody has ever praised her the way they did praise joe you may be absolutely right about that there's a certain level of you know being the younger child and not feeling like anybody supports her that may be feeding her insecurities but but I do think it's she's insecure, but she's also unwilling. She says, "If I can't, if it can't be perfect, if it can't be great, I don't want to do it." Really? Is that is that the is it? I have had that feeling. I have absolutely had that feeling. If I can't be great, then it's not worth it because I'm going to put all of this time and effort into it, and nobody's going to care. I absolutely identify with that feeling. I think that is such a real feeling. That doesn't mean that that's where you end. But that is that is absolutely the feeling of being an artist. And this is part of my problem with Joe is that she never struggles with that feeling. And I think that is absolutely a part of being an artist, that feeling that you're not good enough. And this is why I think I can't ultimately identify with Joe. It's not about ending on that feeling. It's not okay. about giving up. Well, I, it's about the fact that every artist at some point or another in reality questions whether or not they're good enough and whether or not it's worth it for them to do this. I, I do agree with that, but I also agree with Kurt Vonnegut, who said, even if, if you never make a penny off of your work, off of your writing, off of your art, off of whatever it is you do that is creative, you should do it. Everybody should be creative. And so when I see Amy giving up and saying, if I'm not going to be great, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. To me, that's not a true artistic statement. It might be something that we that you would do in a moment and then come back to it if you were a true artist. But she doesn't. She just, she acts like she's never going to come back to it, and we don't actually see her go back to her art. Maybe she does, but we don't see. Yes, it. we do. In the school, she's in the school. She says that before. She says that before we see her do another drawing of Timothy Chalamet. Now, we, we, don't, we don't see uh, a ton of her doing art after that because I don't think the story cares about her that much. The story really cares about Joe. Well, Joe is the main character. I mean, she's the main character in the novels, too. Okay, I do agree that I feel like St Amy's story is to some extent unresolved because I don't think we get back to her artistry i don't think she gets back to it and, and maybe that's that's i mean i think that's your interpretation <laughs> but i think it's greta's interpretation i don't think she sees amy's art as being important to her life which is i don't think louisa may alcott and sees that may be amy's true as well as being important 
I, I, I suspect that Greta Gerwig might like Amy more than Louisa May Alcott did. I mean, she, she, she hired Florence Pugh, who is just one of the most likable actresses mm-hmm. around today. She's very extremely good. popular. And so I, I think Greta Gerwig has probably actually uh, enhanced Amy's story from what it originally was. And for me, honestly, like my favorite scenes are Amy's scenes, even though I don't like Laurie at all, which I feel like mm-hmm. just goes to show exactly how likable Florence Pugh is. Uh, and also just how interested I am in Amy as a character. Uh, and you know, like, you know what? You should write her story. Oh, hard no, hard pass. <laughs> I don't write historical fiction, but I, I, I get what you're saying about Kurt Vonnegut's quote, but here's the thing. Amy has already produced art. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't think Kurt Vonnegut's quote is a condemnation of her. She has already produced art. I think that qualifies her as an artist, even if she does quit because she has already done it. And sometimes artists retire. Uh, and I don't, I, her I am not of the, no, true, but she's a woman who's expected to get married and have babies. And, and not only that, but we are at the point in the story when she marries Lori, she has been told point blank by Aunt March that her two older sisters are a lost cause and it is her duty to get married to a rich guy so that she can support her family. That is what she has been told repeatedly and what she understands as her true value. I'm not saying I agree. I certainly don't. And I don't think that there's any, that that should stop her from doing art. But I understand that pressure. And it's a pressure that a lot of female artists end up feeling. All artists feel a certain amount of insecurity. And I think it can be a lot worse for women who are often told in a million different ways that their art is never going to be that important and that their true value is to get married and have babies. And that can wear on you over time. It can. I think you were seeing things in Amy that Alcott did not put there. Yeah, she might not her, have, but I don't her, like her that much as a writer. True. Same here. Amy's character is the one who is materialistic. She wants pretty dresses. She wants to go to parties. That's why she wants to go to the, yeah. the movie theater. Or, or not the I movie want theater, all those the play. She wants to go see the play. She you know, she wants to go to Europe. She wants that she wants that life. She she openly admits it. I always knew I would marry money. Mm-hmm. It's not just that she's got to take care of her family, but that she really she is and I'm not saying that this as a con, yeah, I think it's condemnation both. of her at all. I'm just saying that's the way the mm-hmm. character is written in the novel. And I think that's mm-hmm. the way she, they portray they don't actually Actually, she doesn't, Gerwig doesn't actually write her that way in the movie as harshly, I think, as Alcott does yeah. in the novel. So she she gives yeah. her the benefit of the doubt a little bit. I, I and, think Gerwig has a lot more sympathy for Amy than She does. I think she Louisa does. And, and I, do, I don't dislike Amy at all. I like her, I think, and that is probably attributable to... You have called her a spoiled brat. Well, the character times. is a spoiled brat, brat but, but Florence Pugh's depiction of her is beautiful. I mean, she's yeah. interesting. She's charismatic. She's yeah. smart. She's witty. She has... Has the the men that she's entertaining completely wrapped around her little finger. So she's you know she yep. she she knows she's a very smart woman, very capable yes. woman. So when she says, "If I can't be great, I don't want to do it," that is out of character to me. It seems like because she she seems to me. I mean, she is a spoiled brat in her relationship with Joe, I think. But she does seem to come of age when she goes to Europe and and finds herself. Why would she give up on her art at that point? I think she's having a low moment. And I actually think that that's exactly the time that you would have the low moment because 
she thought this was going to be like her paradise. She thought she was going to come to Paris and rule it. And, you know, everyone was going to see how brilliant she was and she was going to have a great time and learn so much in these lessons. And instead she gets there and it's kind of the same as home. Nobody really cares about her. She isn't wowing anyone. Except Lori. And she does wow Lori. And, and she does she does wow the other guy. What's the other guy say? Yeah, yeah, she she can wow men. She she can get men to like her in a feminine way. Fred Vaughn is the other guy. Mm -hmm. She can use her feminine wiles and her beauty and her fashion and charisma to pull these men in. I think it's a combination of she is good at that and also that is what society wants to reward her for. When when she makes a decision to give up on her art, I don't think she does that because other people are not noticing her art. I think she looks at her art and compares it to, to the guy next to her and decides in her own mind that she's not good enough. I don't I don't see anybody telling her she's not a good enough artist. We don't really have scenes where anyone talks about her art one way or the other. So I, I do think it's kind of left up to interpretation what's happening there. But I am seeing that because I identify with that. Yeah. Not, not in the same way, but I have also struggled in an artistic field where it's very hard to get any recognition and it's very easy to feel like there's just no point. Uh, and I... I identify with that moment. So I want to say one last thing about Amy, which is that I think she also has my my favorite speech. I think the the speech where she talks about, you know, knowing that she would always knowing that she would marry rich and not being ashamed of that. I, I really like that speech. I, I think that speech is a good in, encapsulation of her character. You know, she does have this artistic desire, but she is also the pragmatist, I think, out of the four siblings. I think she's the one who is the most practical and pragmatic about the world that they live in. And I appreciate her for that. And I think ultimately that's why Aunt March takes her with her to Paris instead of Joe. To, I mean, to Aunt March from the beginning, she was pretty clear that she was only going to take one of them with her to Paris to get them married off. And it was very clear that Amy was the only one who was going to go along with that. Do I think that's fair? No. Aunt March is an interesting character for the kind of hypocrisy in her soul. I, I, I kept in my head kind of referring to her as the Phyllis Schlafly of the plot because she's very concerned with telling these girls that they need to get married. But meanwhile, she herself is not married. <laughs> and it's a very like, do as I say, not as I do kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Very much. But on the other hand, she does, she is also a lot more pragmatic than the girl's parents she are. didn't lose her fortune and she's not wrong it is true that none of them are going to have an easy time making their way in the world without a marriage and that their best option is for one of them to marry rich and luckily for all of them amy was on board with that plan and, and i think the other speech too and i don't i don't think it's the same one maybe it is yeah she's got like two yeah the, the other one where she talks about how she and we mentioned this earlier in the program that she she knows that if she has her even if she has her own money it's not hers when she marries yes when she has children with her husband they are her husband's children not hers Mm -hmm. He owns her. He will own me. He will mm -hmm. own our children. Sometimes the best you could you could hope for, if you were a woman with a certain intellect and a feeling of or a need for independence, like Joe has, sometimes the best you could you could hope for. And Jane Austen does a really good job of this: yes. is marrying a man who understands what you need. Find, and yeah. finding that man was probably a lot less possible and probably totally unrealistic, and yet somehow. 
Austin thought it wasn't. <laughs> but um, Well, Austin was writing at a time when women had an unusual amount of social power. This is one of the things about the Regency era is uh, among the landed gentry, there was so little to do that people became really obsessed with finding the right marriage and matchmaking between people. And that kind of changed the balance of power to be a little bit more egalitarian. Mm. Uh, and then Jane Austen came along and wrote her characters with as much agency as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something to be said for Amy understanding that in 1860-whatever. And it's certainly a precursor or foreshadowing of the speech in, in, in the Barbie movie, which uh, Greta definitely has, you know, a certain point of view. <laughs> In, her, in yes. her movies. I think we should talk a little bit about the men. Um, we've talked a lot about the women. And it, I mean, it is the little women. I, you know, And apparently the father calls them that, my little women. It just drives me crazy every time. He says, yeah, he says it twice. But I, I do like Mr. Lawrence uh, as played by Chris Cooper. He's the best male character. He is someone who cares about this family. He has lost his, both of his children have died. Yes. And he was particularly devastated when his daughter died. So it's, it's, I think she died young. Very young. Yeah. And, and the son lived long enough to have an heir. To so, have a child. Yeah. yeah. So Laurie is his heir. And so he attaches himself to this family when the mother gives their Christmas morning meal away to the, to the very poor family. He sends them a lavish meal how do you know how does he see how does he know that they've done that it's in the book too so i don't i mean i think they probably because they, they live right next door they, so yeah I think they probably saw them carrying their food maybe so but anyway so he he sends them a lavish meal he becomes attached to beth i guess because she reminds him of his daughter she comes to his house and plays the piano and he gives her the piano eventually but one time when she comes to play i guess the first time he is sitting on the steps uh he doesn't let her see him he's sitting on the steps listening to her it, it's just such a sweet sad scene you really like him in that moment and he's probably the yeah. only male character i can say that about in the whole movie really liked him a lot um i never like he's clearly missing his daughter and when when beth dies they don't even want to tell him i mean it's it's just really it's, it's almost like they're telling their father you know because what's important about that scene is he is actually doing her a favor oh, by yeah. not letting her know that he's there because she didn't want to admit that she wanted to play his piano at first because she doesn't want anyone to hear her and when she finally agrees to come over and play the piano she says like repeatedly as long as you're sure i won't be disturbing you and no one will hear me mm -hmm. so he clearly wants to hear the music but he doesn't mm -hmm. want her to be scared off so he stays he's a very empathetic guy <laughs> he really understands yeah. his family he understands what they're going through he understands that they're they're they have their pride so he, he doesn't want to yeah. do too much for them so he just does enough that it's it's helpful but it's also it's it's a compassionate and loving mm -hmm. kind of help he's also at least in this version kind of the story's main expression of the grief for beth because mm -hmm. we don't really get long grieving scenes from like you know we see them go to the funeral and we see them cry a little bit but mm -hmm. kind of the most poignant scene about it is when joe comes home she sees him hanging out outside their house and not going in and he tells her that he just can't bring himself to go in while Beth's not there. Yeah. It, it's a it's a wonderful relationship for Beth to have because she is such uh, an introvert. She doesn't go out into the world and she has this relationship outside of her family. So that's really yes. nice. An interesting thing about the, the grieving scenes, we hear them say that Aunt March has died 
but they like yeah. we don't know when it happens and yeah. we don't there's no funeral and there is a funeral for yeah. Beth. So it's like, okay, what happened to Aunt Marge? Well she died and left me her house. But she was a kind of a prominent character. She wasn't in, yeah, in a I lot guess of nobody scenes. cared. And, and we should say point out that Meryl Street plays this character. Yes. Does a very nice job. But, you know, it's almost like it's a throw out, a throw off. I mean, she just like, this is an easy character for Meryl Streep to play. She does a great job. But yeah, it's, it's not like for Meryl Streep, this is not a particularly nuanced no, character. It wasn't a challenge. wasn't a challenge at all. But yeah, we, we find out because they're walking through her empty house that Joe has just inherited. Yes, and that's, just how that's how we find, how we find that out that, that she's dead. Yes. Yeah. Like the only thing that mattered about her in the end was that she left Joe she a left house. house. And, and the thing is, she does leave it to Joe. Because she, yeah. she doesn't leave it to Amy, who, you know, I mean, I think Joe is her favorite. I mean, Amy doesn't need it. Amy Amy marries Laurie and gets, will eventually yeah. get Mr. Lawrence's home. So Chris Cooper and Mr. Lawrence is my favorite character, and you wanted to talk about Laurie a little bit. Well, at, first of all, I will just mention, the dad is kind of a non-character, mm-hmm. the, the girl's dad. And like, that's true he, in you know, every version of this movie. Yeah. Bob Odenkirk is fine, but he just, he barely exists. Mm-hmm. He does not seem important. Actually, when Beth dies, my partner and I were like, is the dad? still here did the dad die off screen and then you do see he is at the funeral but he's like not there while beth is dying Mm -hmm. and there's no explanation because he should be back from the war at that point so it's just kind of like he's just sort of a non-entity but Lori, okay so first of all i should admit that i'm not a big fan of timothy chalamet i agree Uh, me neither he kind of creeps me out a little and that's feels mean to say but too pretty it it feels too pretty I don't actually, I you don't, I don't find him attractive. Okay. I don't think he's attractive. He's too pretty. My problem with him is that it feels like he has two facial expressions and those facial yeah. expressions are glower and leer. <laughs> Every time he smiles, it feels fake. He has a drunken scene, but I'm watching this drunken scene with him and I'm like, he does not know what to do with his body. He's, he's like... Yeah, he's kind of goofy about his body. He is not very flexible as an actor. You're right. It's like, he does weird things with his body in the drunken scene. But yeah, and yeah, just every time he smiles, it feels manipulative to me, and I don't know why, and I'm so sorry to everyone who is a big fan of Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I know I'm in the minority. You and I are in the minority. He's very, he's a very popular actor, and he's done a lot of things, and other people like him. This is all subjective. I'm not a big fan of him as an actor, and... I'm really not a big fan of Laurie as a character. He starts off okay when he first meets Joe in that first scene. Like, you kind of like him there because Joe kind of doesn't have anything to do at the ball. And the scene where they're dancing outside on the porch is very cute. Uh, I think part of the reason it works is that there's not a lot of dialogue. So Mm -hmm. it's all like physical stuff between the two of them. And I do think that Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet have pretty good chemistry as much as I'm not a fan of Chalamet. I think the two of them have good chemistry together. Saoirse Ronan is very good at doing that kind of overjoyed expression with with her body. That that whole dancing and, and smiling scene, I, I, I think that scene really works. But after that, I mean, first of all, and you know, I, I don't think this is like a knock against his performance. I think it's how it's supposed to be. But every scene where... Lori is hanging out with all of the girls it's like very clear that his attention is on Joe alone and he's only putting up with these girls so that he can be around Joe 
And that would make sense if that was like just initially and then eventually he got to know the other girls better. But it feels to me ultimately disrespectful of what Joe is actually about. I feel like if he actually wanted to really be a good partner for Joe and thought it through, he would become real friends with her sisters because her sisters are genuinely important to her. And he chooses not to because he's only interested in Joe. And this comes to a real head the moment where I, Lori completely loses loses me is when he goes to the ball where Meg is May or the debutante ball Meg has to go to the city at some point I'm not sure exactly where she goes but she leaves home and she has to be introduced to society at this debutante ball and Lori's surprise shows up there she didn't know he was going to be there so it's a surprise when when he's there and he tells her that they didn't tell her because it was meant to be a surprise and then he proceeds to be just like unnecessarily mean to her and kind of ruins her night. He he does eventually turn it around, but it's just like she's clearly excited to be there and then he shows up and again he's doing the thing where like he says it was meant to be a surprise that I'm here, but as he says it he's not smiling, he's just kind of glowering, he looks miserable and you can tell immediately, like, as she sees him at first, she's, like, delightedly surprised. And then as he starts speaking and he's immediately bitter, you can see her face kind of fall. And then I don't remember exactly how it goes, but he basically just tells her, like, he thinks all of this is stupid and he doesn't want to be there. He, and she he asks if he her likes dress. her dress. He insults her dress. Yeah. yeah. And he says, no, like, I don't like fripperies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, dude... Why are you being so mean to Meg? I don't understand. Like, he he just completely lost me as a character there. And he kind of never recovered. Mm Because he does the same thing, or a similar thing to Amy. Amy invites him to another dance in France and he uh, he agrees to pick her up and take her and then apparently she waits for him for an hour he never shows up so she goes to the dance anyway and then he shows up late and drunk looking like a mess and completely drunk and hanging off of two other girls Mm -hmm. and it's just like why did you agree then why did you agree to go to the dance with her if this is how you were going to (sighs) behave so yeah I I don't like Lori yeah I I agree with you about both Timothy Salome and and the character i i don't like the character but my least favorite character in the in the story and the movie is the mother so do you want to go into hot takes yeah might as well yeah gosh i'm not sure if i have all right so this is the time for us to talk about our hottest takes Mm -hmm. i don't know that i have a very hot take about this except that i just don't like this story that much yeah i feel like i'm supposed to actually you know what no my hottest take is that joe is not my favorite character i feel like joe is supposed to be my favorite character i think she's definitely louisa may alcott's character and i think because i'm a writer i'm supposed to see her as my favorite character mm-hmm. but she's not amy is my yeah. favorite character and you may be a lot of that by the way i was just reading something else just quickly and it said that <laughs> that amy is the worst march sister <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I definitely think Louisa May Alcott does not like yeah, Amy, I, and I, I think, think right. historically Amy has not been the favorite character. I do think she is intended to be a bit of an antagonist for Joe. But you identify with her, so I feel like in this version, Amy is just a much more emotionally resonant depiction of an artist. I am frustrated with the way that Amy's story ends, both because. It feels like we just never get back to whether or not she ever continued to paint and like she absolutely could have. 
Uh, and also, I, I don't like Lori that much as a character. So even though she loves him, I kind of don't love her ending up with him. But, you know, whatever. They're kind of perfect I, for I each other, she's though. Happy. I mean, I do think that she's a better fit for him than Joe was. Uh, yeah. Because I think she won't let him be as much of an asshole yes. as Joe would let him be. I think be. so. Um, and I identify with Joe more. I think she's more she's more of a scrapper. And that's kind of what I've had to be my whole life. She doesn't give up. She keeps plugging away. And maybe it is unrealistic for her to walk into a newspaper office and get paid right away. But apparently that was uh, Louise May Alcott's experience. She wrote for The Atlantic. At the time, it wasn't as unrealistic. Yeah. I'm feeling like historical jealousy. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I understand that. So hot takes. So we talked about Amy's short speech that foreshadows Barbie. My first question is why do we continue to remake this story in movies? I can see why I can see why actresses love it. They're great roles for them. It's their their meaty characters, but the story itself is just so boring. So that's one one hot take. And I really really don't like the mother, and I never have. I, I've seen this. I don't think I've seen Catherine Hepburn version, but I know I have seen an older one. I think it was the Elizabeth Taylor version. She gives away their breakfast. Uh, she tells Joe, "Don't let the sun sun go down on your anger." After Amy burns <laughs> Joe's novel, and I'm sorry, but she had reason to be mad. She acts like she's a fucking saint. Excuse my language. Yeah. And everybody sees her that way but she's not even Beth says do what Marmee does Marmee do it for someone else he's telling Joe to, to do her writing for somebody else and, and Marmee needs for everyone to like her but I think she's ridiculous she has this self-sacrificial sense of duty that it's just it's, it's harmful to the family you know, first of all, yeah. she's not in the scenes where she should be. There was you, something you mentioned a minute ago where somebody is advising Joe or advising Amy. Why isn't her Oh, no, Meg. When Meg, Meg is getting ready to go off to the dance, why doesn't her mother there... Why doesn't her mother advise her? Where is where is yeah. Marmy anyway? She's never also never around. Where is Marmy when Amy burns Joe's manuscript? Like she yeah. also should have seen how upset Amy was and talked to her about it, and she just didn't. She's <laughs> off taking care of other people uh, instead of her own children. She's determined to be a martyr and to make her daughters into martyrs. And Beth follows in her mother's self sacrificial shoes and goes to take care of this family, not knowing they have scarlet fever. She gets sick. It affects her heart, and she dies really young. There is a direct connection between their mother's sense of duty and self-righteous, self-sacrificial mm-hmm. approach to life and her daughter's young death. That pisses me yeah. off. As a mother, your first responsibility is to your children, not to other yeah. families. It's okay to be yeah. to, to take care of other people when you can, but you don't set mm-hmm. your own children aside and go off and take care of other people's children. It's wrong. <laughs> It also kind of feels like every time she helps that family, it feels like she's addressing the symptoms and not the disease. I I, I almost wondered at a certain point, wouldn't it have been easier on all of them if she had just had that family move in with them? They might have only gotten sick because they're living in like a shack where you can see spaces between the slats in the walls. That's basically like living in a tent. They have no insulation. It's great that you bring them breakfast, but like, you know that breakfast is going to be cold in two seconds and they're not going to have a way to heat it up Mm -hmm. and they're going to be freezing while they eat it. It feels like everything she does is at best a half measure. Yeah. I don't know. I I think both the mother and Joe feel a sense of duty for other people, but actually the difference in them is that Marmee, however, I gotta hate that name too. It's just so 
so yeah. disgusting. But yeah. but and she, she even says to somebody walking in the door that she doesn't know, oh, call me Marmy, everybody does. Really? You want this strange person to call you the same thing your children call you? That's weird. Anyway, mm-hmm. but she does things out of a sense of duty, and I think Joe does things for other people out of love. I think her, her decisions... When she comes back to take care of her sister, all of that is because she really has a strong love for her family. She has the mother's love that Marmy doesn't seem to have. That's my take on it. And she's determined. I, you know, it's that scrapper. I, I like. I think I like Joe because of her her determination. Um, she doesn't believe in God's will. She believes in her mm. own will. In her own. Yeah. And yeah. I love that. I love that about her, uh, and I relate to it. So that's all I got. All right, yeah. Oh, wait, you asked a question. We didn't answer it. Why do we keep remaking this story? I mean, I think a lot of people do love it, but I think it's also just two things. First of all, we love a remake. We, we keep remaking. You know, there's there's a number of classics that we keep remaking. I think it's, all, it's always going to be a safe bet from a Hollywood studio perspective to do a remake because there's a built-in audience. We, we are know that producing another version of this story is gonna get butts in seats because for whatever reason people love to see a remake we, we like to revisit stories that we already know uh, and I think this one is a prime example of that because the reason we like to revisit stories that we already know is that it's comforting and I think this story is meant to be a comforting story even though Beth dies I think this story is written to be a nice story about nice people. <laughs> it's comforting and it's 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 a comfort food kind of story. And I think that's a big part of its appeal. And that's also probably why it's not that appealing to me. Yeah. Um, it's not my kind of Same comfort here. story. And I think also this one in particular gets a lot of remakes because there aren't nearly as many classics about women as there are about men. I think that's it. And there's four characters in it. <laughs> And we love the interplay, yes. you know, they're not, and they're not whores, you know, they're not, I mean, you know, that's, that's a lot of time when you get good, good female characters, you know, in the history of movies, a lot of times they're, you know, the whores in the meth, in the Western or, you know, they're, oh, you, okay. You mean like literal Yeah, I mean, little, like the characters okay. are, are more wholesome. Not my favorite story ever. Not my favorite. I, yeah. you know, I will never watch another version of this. I don't care who makes it. It's just not going to happen. It's not an interesting story to me. The, the characters fail me over and over again, and I yeah. just don't love it. The movie was yeah. okay. The movie's okay except for the, her her flashing back and forth. Those structural problems were were a problem for me. But I do think that Greta Gerwig made this story as interesting as she could. Yeah, and she did definitely yeah. give it a feminist perspective. So that, dear listeners, is all for today. Yes, I'm Tessa Dare. You can find me at my website tessadare.com. That's T-E-S-S-A-D-A-I-R.com where you can sign up for my email list or you can follow me on Instagram or threads at author.tess.adair and uh, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash where you lead and I'm Beth Von Baron. you can follow me on Instagram at stl underscore writer underscore Beth or sign up for my weekly Substack email Saturday morning musings at stlwriterbeth.substack.com This has been Women Inherit the Earth, a discussion podcast about women and movies from the perspective of a mother and daughter who sometimes quarrel over these things as we did in this one. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll tune in for our next episode in two weeks. See you then.